As we continue our What About series, I'd like to preach a message today on what about Christians and ethnicity, or what about Christians and racism. As many of you might know, both Ab and I went to Bob Jones University, which is in South Carolina, for our undergrad degrees, and in fact, I stayed there um, for two years in seminary. And people who know anything about Bob Jones tend to ask, or at least think, one of two questions when they find out that I went there. The first question is, are you a legalist? That's generally the first thing people ask or think. And the second, uh, following on its heels, is, are you racist? All right? Uh, that's an inevitable, inevitable reality for those of us who went to Bob Jones. And the reason for that second question is that for far too many years, Bob Jones conformed to the racist world around it instead of resisting it. So they refused to enroll black students until 1971. Uh, they fought a widely publicized Supreme Court battle in the 80s as a result of their ban on interracial dating. In that battle, which the school lost, and they also lost their tax-exempt status, the university lawyers argued on the basis of sincerely held religious convictions, stating God intended segregation of the races and that the scriptures forbid interracial marriage. In 2000, while I was still a student at Bob Jones, uh, the president at the time, Bob Jones III, he dropped the interracial dating rule, and he announced it on Larry King Live, another highly publicized moment. Uh, this big uproar had resulted because George Bush had visited the campus, and of course the press had a field day with President Bush going to this racist campus. Uh, in November of 2008, more recently, the university made a public statement declaring itself profoundly sorry for having allowed, quote, institutional policies to remain in place that were racially hurtful, unquote. So I say all that to give you the first reason that I want us to consider this what about this morning. The first reason that it's on my mind is, is my own personal background that at best, at very best, left the topic of ethnicity and racism severely underdeveloped biblically. And I'm concerned that perhaps some of you have also in your past had a very underdeveloped biblical perspective of ethnicity and racism. I knew very little and sadly thought and cared very little about Bob Jones' checkered past while I was a student there. Uh, but since then, I've become profoundly convicted about my need to see all people from a biblical perspective. So I've heard sermons since then. I've studied biblical evidence since then. And they have forced me to want to ask and answer this question for us today. What about Christians and ethnicity? There are several other reasons I think we have to answer this question this morning. Um, and they include a kind of default racism, unspoken assumptions, and a lack of ethnic diversity in our own church. All right, first, by default, naturally, without anyone trying to make it so, humans tend toward racism. Webster defines racism this way. Racism is a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. All right, did you catch all that? It's a belief. It's the belief that race is a primary determiner when it comes to traits, abilities, capacities, and that those differences make some people better than other people. All right? Racism is not just about issues of black and white, although that's been the most common divide in American history. Racism does not have to be the neo-Nazi skinhead variety to be real and a real issue for us to consider this morning. Even if it's only different from those extremes in quantity, 
we, we tend, we just naturally default tend to elevate our own ethnicity as superior to others in our minds and in our habits. Our default is to view people who are different from us with suspicion, with caution, and even with disdain. So quite naturally, which is not at all to say acceptably or excusably, we gravitate to people that are like us and we stand apart from people who are different than us. All right, that's a natural reality. <clears throat> Our unspoken assumptions also factor into this topic that we're studying this morning. Um, we tend to view everything through our own ethnicity and our own culture, and that includes scripture. All right? Please tell me this is not just me, but sometimes when I'm reading in the Bible and I read about something like a road or traveling, what comes to my mind is a freeway or a paved street. All right? When I read in my Bible that people sat down for a meal, I think about cheeseburgers and french fries. Uh, when I imagine sometimes what Abraham looked like or Jesus or the disciples, they end up looking very similar to me. They end up looking very Caucasian. And, uh, and that's not just me, and I know that's not just me, because for centuries, art has portrayed people in the Bible as European or North American. So, for instance, the great work of Michelangelo, uh, some of you might have in your very own house the work called The Last Supper. Anybody have that in your house? You have The Last Supper? Nobody does. I'm surprised. All right, but you know what it is, right? You know the, the famous painting that many people do, or maybe you just didn't want to admit it. All right, I don't know. But uh, in this painting, what you have is 12 Europeans sitting around a European table, all right? You don't have Jewish people lying at a table like they would have uh, because, again, our ethnicity colors even how we look at Scripture. I hate to break it to you. I hope this is not breaking it to you. But uh, Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, Moses did not look anything like that, all right? If, if when you think of Moses, you think Charlton Heston, uh, you're viewing things through a very certain ethnic grid, and it's not a right one, all right? And with all apologies to uh, your flannel graph system, I hope yours wasn't like this, uh, if your concept of Jesus is a feminine Aryan because of a flannel graph, then you've totally missed the boat, all right? Jesus was a Jew, and we, we have to have that ethnic perspective in our minds. Uh, there's this one writer, and he humorously wrote, the people of the biblical world did not look like the people of rural Minnesota. All right? The people who read in our Bibles had a very certain ethnicity, but we tend to think of them as we think of ourselves. And those tendencies color how we look at our own culture and world, even if we don't say those out loud. All right? And there's just one more reason that I think we should consider this this morning, and that's just a quick scan around this room. Just a quick look shows a general lack of ethnic diversity here. Generally, we all look the same physically, and we share overlapping cultural, family, and, and many of us even religious backgrounds. So our need to think biblically about ethnicity today is only heightened by our mostly similar ethnic identity. We're used to seeing only our own ethnicity in our church services. And I know in some cases here in the valley, there are still churches who in the not-so-distant past had only a very specific ethnicity present. For instance, they were a German church or a Swedish church or a, or a Dutch church. We don't have to look farther than our own hearts and our own valley to discover racism or questions about ethnicity. But the world at large is in complete uproar over different racial issues. So overseas, we have the rise of things like ethnic cleansing. And we have the constant ethnic strife that goes on in the Middle East. Here in America, we have confirmation hearings for potential Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor. We have America's first black president. We have this week's Henry Louis Gates, James Crowley affair, if you were paying attention to the news. Uh, we have immigration policy. To name just a few things, questions of ethnicity surround us. They are all around us. And today, 
We don't need a political speech or a lesson on sociology. What we need is the word of God to drive our thoughts about ethnicity. So no differently than any of the other whatabouts that we've been doing, we need to turn our attention to God's perfect word. And this is going to be the message for today. Here's the main point that I hope you will get and see in clarity. The gospel, the gospel is the greatest antidote for an argument against racism. Okay? The gospel itself is the greatest antidote for it, an argument against racism. So today we're going to take a gospel prescription that should help inoculate us against the sin sickness that is racism. It's kind of like a series of shots that we might need to equip our bodies to fight a disease. We're going to take three biblical shots in order as each one builds on top of the other. And this gospel presentation, this gospel prescription, uh, is not going to provide options for us this morning. It's going to provide demands. It's going to be mandatory. So here are the demands from the gospel. First of all, the gospel demands a biblical view of man. Second, the gospel demands a biblical view of Christian. And third, the gospel demands a biblical view of eternity. So let's turn to what is my favorite chapter in the Bible, Colossians chapter 3. I hope that's appropriate to have a favorite chapter in God's inspired word. I know it's all as inspired uh, as the rest. I just happen to like Colossians 3 especially. And uh, we've heard this read this morning. Let me, let me read from verse 1 down through verse number 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1-4 sets the table for us to see that the gospel makes demands on our view of ourselves, on humanity. All right? There are two central thoughts in these verses, and these two central thoughts are commands. So look, look down at the two central ideas. First, it's a command, seek the things that are above. That's the first main thought. The second main thought is, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Both of these commands imply that we need to do an ongoing action, and they both come with some clarifiers. So first, let's consider, seek the things that are above. Why should you do that today? Why does Paul say we should seek the things that are above? Well, the beginning of the verse explains it to us. It says, if, then you have been raised with Christ. And properly understood, that's a since, all right? So since, because you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? We're talking about resurrection here. And resurrection, obviously, always comes after death, all right? I mean, if we're raised with Christ, it implies that there is a death. What Paul is doing is he's drawing the Colossians' attention to their conversion, the moment that they became joined with Christ. And that moment was a moment of death. All right? It was a moment of death. Look, at the, look down at the next command in, in verse number 2. This next command is going to show us that we have to have a heavenly, a divine perspective. And this divine perspective of setting our minds on things that are above and not on things of the earth, it comes through the gospel. God demands that Christians live with a heavenly, eternal, divine perspective. And we get that perspective not by thinking how the world does, but by thinking how God does. So it says in verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why should we do that? Why should you do that today? Why should you set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth? Well, this verse is going to tell us as well. Verse number 3, for you have what? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The reason that we should set our minds on things above and we should 
seek the things that are above is because we have died in Christ and we have been raised with him. And so Paul assumes here the Colossians have a grasp of biblical salvation, of what conversion really is. In fact, he assumes they were paying attention earlier on in Colossians when he wrote to them that in chapter 2, verse number 12, we were buried with Christ and then raised with him. In 2.20, he says we died with Christ, all right? What is, why does Paul keep drawing our attention to death as the central theme of conversion? Well, the reason is that our interest must be Christ's interest and our perspectives, his perspectives, when we become a believer. Our lives are no longer our own since we live the life of Christ. So we actually must be clear in our understanding of conversion before we understand the commands of Colossians 3. So if you think about conversion in any other terms less than the end of you, the death of you, that you're dying to yourself, you are picking up your cross and following Christ. If you think of conversion in anything less than that, we're actually shortcutting God's plan for us to be sanctified. Think about Galatians 2.20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think sometimes we just kind of skip over those words and we ignore the reality of death. Paul said, my life is over. I don't get to make my choices anymore. I don't get to choose what I think is most important in life. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't get to choose what's right and what's wrong. I'm dead, and now Christ lives. This is the argument of unity in Christ. Salvation is not about life improvement. It's not about reworking our mental concept of ourselves. It's not about pursuing happiness. Conversion demands your death, your death to yourself and your sin and your desires, And beloved, that's why the pseudo-gospel that's all around us today is so dangerous. That's why this false gospel of prosperity or health or self-esteem or easy believism, it's why it's so detrimental to Christian living, because it actually ruins our ability to live as God intends us with any issue, whether it's racism or any other sin. The lordship of Christ and the death of ourselves in conversion means that we no longer get to pursue our own agendas or elevate our thoughts over God's. Do you understand that from these verses? We're gods. We're dead. We don't get to pick how we view reality anymore. We now think Christ's thoughts after him. Think about what the good news does to our view of ourselves. The gospel demands that we change how we think about ourselves. We can't keep going, well, we're basically good people, right? I mean, the gospel, gospel doesn't let you think that you're a good person. The gospel condemns you. It says you actually need to understand the bad news before you understand the good news. Now, you need to understand, if you're going to embrace the gospel, that you're a sinner, you are hopeless. You are, you are helpless. Uh, you don't have a spark of goodness inside you that somebody needs to fan. Uh, you're, you're lost. That's the gospel message. You need a savior. You're, you're drowning, completely incapable of rescuing yourself. You need someone to swoop down and rescue you. That's the gospel message. The gospel that demands we see ourselves, mankind, humanity, from God's perspective, and that includes so much more than just our sinfulness, even though it starts there. All right. How can we understand mankind from God's perspective? Well, the way to do that is to let him tell us how to think. So let's look at two key thoughts about man that will help us get our first inoculation against racism. All right? This is why the gospel demands a biblical view of man. First of all, all people are made in God's image. And second, all people come from Adam. So turn with me to Genesis chapter number one. We're going to go to the very beginning. And let's let God, from the very beginning of his word, Let's let him tell us how to think about people, all peoples, including ourselves. Genesis 1, 
We're just going to read two verses, 26 and 27. We're going to quickly look at several passages that, that show us what is true about mankind from God's perspective. All right? Because this is God's perspective and we're Christians, obviously we embrace God's perspective, right? We agree. It's the gospel that makes us agree with what God says. And what God says is, all people are made in his image. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there's been no shortage of debate over what exactly the image of God is. All right, you might notice that Moses doesn't fully describe what this image is. He doesn't give us this detailed, systematic treatment of here's everything that the image of God equals. So a lot of people have pointed out, well, there's a direct connection. God says, I make man in his image, and then I give him dominion over the earth. So a lot of people have said that the main concept of the image of God is that man should rule in God's place here on earth. So man is God's divinely appointed representative. And other people have, have said, look at all of the unavoidable distinctions between man and animal. Look at how man has, has intellect and art and culture and relationships and morality. Look at all these things that make man different from animal, and that is the image of God. Still others have said, well, man is, is uniquely relational. I mean, only man forms the kind of relationships. Um, no, no animal in the animal kingdom forms relationships like humans do. So maybe the image of God is that we form unique relationships. And other people have said, well, image is a very physical word. So we know that God doesn't have a body, so how can our bodies be in the image of God? And they've, they've argued about these things. Uh, and without meaning this to be a total cop-out this morning, I think we have to understand the image of God in man as a total package deal, all right? So I'm choosing E of all of those options. I would like all of the above, all right? Uh, all of those things are the image of God. Resemblances, ways that man is like God, allow mankind to represent God in ruling and to establish meaningful relationships with God and each other, right? So the Bible doesn't break man up into lots of component pieces. The whole package of what it means to be a human, everything that it takes to be you, your body, your morality, your intellect, your emotions, um, your ability to relate to other people, that whole package uniquely images God forth in a way that no other creation can, all right? And you say, ah, we are... How far away are we from the discussion of ethnicity? We're not far at all. Because the importance of understanding all people to be in God's image, especially for this topic, we can't underestimate how important this understanding is. In fact, I want to show you some of the Bible's own application of this crucial understanding of all people. We have to believe that all people are in God's image. Flip over to Genesis 9. We're just going to take a quick little whirlwind tour. Genesis 9, the flood has subsided. God has covenanted with Noah. Genesis 9, we're going to read verses 3 to 6. This is the description of life after the flood. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, verse number 3. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, for man's lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And look at verse number 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So the logic behind this divinely decreed death penalty is not that human life is invaluable and it doesn't matter. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This points to the incredibly high value of, of human life. 
Only man is made in God's image. So killing a man is a direct assault on God. Killing a human means destroying what is most like God in all of creation. It's the one thing that best images God. So to kill that is an attack on God himself. There are other passages that remind us that the image of God has a direct impact on how we look at people. Let me read for you Proverbs 17.5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Right? Notice the connection. In, in Proverbs, it's an economic sense and not an ethnic one. But it says there's a connection between the poor and God. If you insult, if you mock the poor, who are you actually insulting? You're insulting the maker of the poor one. So you cannot make fun of a person created in the image of God without insulting the creator. So without going too far afield this morning, I think it's entirely appropriate to, to make an application in an ethnic sense to this verse. Racial jokes are a direct insult to God. You cannot mock people made in the image of God without mocking God himself. So speaking of using our tongues sinfully, let's flip it to the New Testament to James chapter number 3. Look at one more passage that, that shows us that man is in the image of God, and that should have a drastic effect on how we look at others, at people. James chapter number 3. After James has described the potent and defiling and incontrollable nature, incontrollable nature of our tongues, he writes this in verse number 8, James 3 verse number 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are what? Made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It, it ought not be that we bless God and curse any person. And why is that? Because all men are made in the image of God. So regardless of ethnicity or handicap or difference, cursing someone in the image of God is unacceptable. James's point is that if we curse the image of God, we're cursing God. And unfortunately, the things that ought not to be so have been so in the Christian church when it comes to racism. There are people that have gathered on Sundays and have said that they bless God and worship him. And then all week long, they have gone out and cursed man in the image of God. They have gone out and they have said certain, certain of, of God's image, those who are created in his image, they're not worthy to sit on the same bus seats. Uh, they're not worthy to drink from the same fountains. They're not worthy to go to the same schools. We bless God on Sunday and we curse the image of God all week long. And perhaps we too, who have sung in Christ alone on Sunday, have then turned around and cursed people in God's image who speak their different language in our grocery stores or who ruin our school systems or strain our health care. God forgive us, beloved, because these things ought not to be so for those whose perspective of mankind is shaped by the word of God, which says all people are in God's image. If we actually believe and live like all people are equally made in God's image, we will never succumb to even the slightest hint of racism. It's impossible. We can't because we would never insult God. It is impossible to mistreat, demean, or make yourself superior to any person if you truly believe that they are in God's image. You understand the importance of saying all people are in the image of God. The gospel demands that we have God's perspective of humanity and that we submit to that. So it's not our prerogative to look at humanity and say, well, all people are 
are basically good, and we're going to ignore what the gospel says about our need of, of forgiveness and of salvation. It's also not our prerogative to look at one ethnicity and say, you're not worthy of attention or regard. We can't buy into white supremacy or American superiority or any other racist view. Instead, we, with God, agree that all people are made in his image, and then we treat them that way. But besides God's perspective that all people are made in his image, think about a second point, and that is that all people came from Adam. Where did all the different ethnicities in our world, where did they come from? Ever wondered that? Where did all the ethnicities come from? Well, science has their answer. Science looks to evolution um, as its solution of where ethnicities come from. In fact, evolution likes to use the term race. And you may notice that I have, have been avoiding using race by itself. That's because I think it's an inadequate term. It's a term that's been used by evolutionary science to say that there are many different races in the world. And they have been evolving slowly and changing. And their physical characteristics are changing. And Evolutionary science actually fits in very well with racism because if you believe that different people are developing in different ways and in different times, then some of them might actually be superior to another. However, if we're going to believe the biblical description of man, we believe that there is a human race. Right? There is a human race. And where did this human race come from? It came from Adam. So let's look at Acts chapter number 17. And we're going to find out that not only are all people made in the image of God, but all people come from Adam. And again, this is a direct assault. This is a, this is a direct challenge to the worldly perspective of racism or elevating one ethnicity to another. Acts 17.26, we're going to see our unity in Adam. And in context, this is Paul's famous message on Mars Hill. Right? He gets to Mars Hill. He challenges all of the false beliefs in Athens. And that included their wrong views about where man came from. All right? Listen to how he counters what they thought in Acts 17, verse number 26. Talking about God, the God who made the world and everything that's in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's not served by human hands. Verse 26, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. All right? Genesis 3.20 reminds us that Eve was a necessary part of this picture too, all right? She's called the mother of all living. So it's, it's Adam and Eve is where all people came from. Um, where did the ethnic diversity come from in our world? Without getting into any long scientific or biological or sociological explanations, the short answer is all people came from Adam. That's where we all came from. All mankind comes from Adam. And so instead of highlighting how different the human race is, we would do well to think about how much the same we are. All people come from Adam. So again, there's no way that there can be ethnic superiority from any particular group. We cannot. We cannot ignore or deny humanity's oneness in Adam without dire consequences on the gospel itself. All right? Think about this. The gospel tells us that we don't just have a biological connection with Adam. Do you know what else we have a connection with Adam in? We have a connection in Adam's sin, right? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's the words of, of the idea of, of Romans chapter number 5. By one man, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we are in Adam, and that's what makes all of us sinners. So if there's somebody who's not descending from Adam, then guess what? You're going to have to find a different way than the biblical way to explain why they're a sinner. But you're also going to have to find something else. You're going to have to find a different way than the biblical way to explain how they can be saved. 
because we have Adam, who is the head of all humans, and we have Christ, who is the head of all those who believe. We are joined, we are unified in Adam. And when Christ came, he had to be a man, right? He couldn't come as a lamb. He couldn't come as a ram. He couldn't come as an angel. Jesus Christ had to come and be a perfect man to die for imperfect men, right? He had to be like us. And so if there is such a thing as a race, as an ethnicity that is somehow not in Adam, then not only are they divorced from sin, they're divorced from salvation. And we just cannot say that biblically. I've spent the longest on this first main point because... I'm convinced it's the most foundational of, of all the rest, all right? Surely you'd say no one would say that someone from a different ethnicity is less than human or not in the image of God and not in Adam. But tragically, they have, and they've even used the Bible to try to justify themselves. The question for us this morning is, have we fully embraced the solidarity, the oneness, the sameness that you have with every ethnicity on the whole earth? When you walk into a room with with people that you immediately identify as, as different from you, is your first thought, those people are like me. Those people are in Adam, and they're in God's image. They're, they're like me. I see people who are in Adam, born as sinners, just like me. I see people who are in God's image, but they're desperately in need of a Savior, just like me. Because racism is based on an unbiblical view of man, racism is sin. And because grace and the gospel have taught us to overcome sin, then we must turn away from racism. But there are, there are two other helpful inoculations from the gospel, further inoculations that will help us. That should be enough. All people are made in God's image. All people come from Adam. That should be enough to deal a death blow to our wrong, sinful perspectives of other ethnicities. But there's even more reasons that the gospel changes how we look at other people. A second way the gospel changes us is not just our perspective of people, it's our perspective of Christian, right? So let's go back to Colossians 3. We've been away from Colossians for a little bit. Let's get back to Colossians chapter number 3. Paul's going to go on, and he's going to tell these people that they should, um, they should basically become what they are. He, he told them in the first four verses, reality is that you're dead. But look what he says in verse number 5. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Or reality is you're dead. But the irony of sanctification is it takes time for us to grow into our death, all right? It takes time for us to put to death our, our, our sin and what is earthly in us. And he lists all these things. Look at him in verse 5. So put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them. So in the past, this is how you lived. And this is how else you lived. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, right? Let me just stop and interject. Uh, have you ever seen a better description of, of the kind of racist drivel that we can hear than, than that verse? Think about this. It's not just limited for, to a racism context, but think about this. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Uh, that pretty much summarizes the kind of attitudes and actions that come from people who have an unbiblical perspective of racism. All right, verse number nine. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, we're back to the same idea. The gospel means a completely remaking of you, all right? The gospel means that you're a new creation. You're a new creature. You're not just altered a little bit. You are fundamentally different if you're a genuine believer, all right? Conversion, salvation, is about complete transformation. 
It's about complete change. You're actually completely new in Christ. So with that perspective that we are, we are completely new in Christ, I mean, sanctification, it's a necessary fruit of the gospel. It's, it's a whole new us. Look at verse number 11, and we've got to get this connection to the whole new us. Verse number 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So here, what is the here? In this new man, in this new creation, in this new humanity, here where the old has been abolished and the new has been brought in, there is not or there cannot be Greek and Jew, all right? In this new humanity, in this new you that happened because of the gospel, there cannot be Greek and Jew. That's a, that's a summary of, of all mankind, all right? Basically, from biblical perspective, you've got Jewish people and everybody else, all right? You want to talk about ethnic, ethnic perspectives, uh, Scripture says there's Jew and there's Gentile. That's it. And Gentile, that's everybody of, of every ethnicity. And Greek here summarizes the idea of Gentile, all right? And Paul says to these Colossian believers, in Jesus Christ, in this new creation, those distinctions get abolished. Uh, we, we no longer divide people up according to Greek and Jew. We no longer divide people up according to circumcised or uncircumcised. So the Judaizers who were so proud of them being circumcised, Paul says, you don't get any more chance to boast in that because in Christ that doesn't matter. That doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Uh, and he goes on to say, it's not just Greek and, and Jew. It's not just circumcised and uncircumcised. It's barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. All right? Barbarian and Scythian are, are not a contrast. Notice that there's no and. There's an and between Greek and Jew, but there's no and between barbarian and Scythian, right? These are two different groups. Our barbarian was, from the Greek perspective, anybody who didn't speak Greek, all right? You know why they called them barbarians? Because they thought the language that they said sounded like this. So they called them barbarians. That's really why they're called barbarians, honestly, all right? And then there's Scythians, and Scythians were even worse than barbarians because Scythians were the slave class from within the barbarians. They were kind of like the worst of the worst when it came to barbarians. They were especially nobodies. Not only could they not speak Greek, they were slaves. So these people are totally worthless from the world's perspective. And Paul says, in this new humanity, that doesn't count. Those distinctions are no longer viable. It no longer matters if you're slave or free, the two distinct social classes of Paul's day. Look at the contrast, but in contrast to that way of thinking, that worldly, earthly way of thinking, but Christ is all and in all. This is an incredible thing in the original Christ is placed last in the sentence, and it does it to make an emphasis. So the point is, Christ is all and in all. Or you could say, in all and is all Christ. That's what matters in the new creation. See, the gospel changes how we look at Christian, and what it means is you're in Christ now. It says Christ is all. In other words, he's all that matters. When you're in Christ, your life is lost, and you're his. He is all that matters. For the new man, Christ is what is most important, not social class or ethnicity or slavery or freedom. Christ is what matters. He's in all. In other words, he is in every ethnicity, every believer. Christ does not show partiality about which ethnicity he will place his Holy Spirit in. This verse teaches us that the gospel means the erasing of worldly distinctions. Ethnicity is a worldly standard of division that is completely replaced in Christ. There is one commentator, and he helpfully wrote this. Within this realm of the new man, there is no inferiority of one class to another. 
men and women of completely diverse origins are gathered together in unity in Christ, sharing a common allegiance to their Lord. Christ is all that matters. He permeates and indwells all members of his body, regardless of race, class, or background. You see, beloved, racial prejudice belongs to the old man, not to the new. The gospel reworks our sinful patterns of thinking, and in fact, it totally obliterates them. I want you to know that we're not reading some kind of 21st century desire for racial harmony into this verse. This is what these verses mean, and they're not the only verses that say it. Um, We don't have time, but we could go to uh, Galatians 3 and look at verse number 8, when God says to Abraham, I said in the gospel that all nations would be blessed, all peoples. So in Christ, in the gospel, the plan was for all nations to be blessed. He goes on to say, as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right? This is, this is a recurring theme for Paul. The gospel tears down these ethnic barriers. We are one in Christ. The gospel teaches us that all ethnicities are new people placed in Christ. And so now not only can you say, hey, that, that person sitting across the aisle from me, uh, they, are, they are like me, they are in Adam, and they are in the image of God. But when it comes to another believer, you can say, that person is like me, they're in Adam, they're in God's image, and they're also in Christ. It's another point of connection for us. John Stott is right when he says this, it is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus by his cross has abolished the old divisions and created a single new humanity of love while at the same time we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers within our church fellowship, all right? You cannot look at man and say, made in the image of God, comes from Adam, in Christ, and then mistreat them or make them less in our church fellowship. And it is the gospel that demands that now we understand ourselves to be the new people in Christ. And that idea of in Christ is never limited to an individual experience, all right? You guys know this from the New Testament, right? I mean, in Christ uh, is never seen as just individual people are in Christ out there. In Christ demands a necessary connection to a body, to the body of Christ, to the church. So listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is another verse that the gospel is directly connected to our understanding of ethnicity, all right? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, all right? It's talking about at salvation, one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, we were all baptized, we are all connected into one body, which is the body of Christ. And who's that we? Well, the verse is going to tell us. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit places us, every Christian of every ethnicity, into the body of Christ. So every true Christian of every class and culture is indwelt by the living Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so it is impossible to really believe and revel in that truth and then mistreat a believer of a different ethnicity. You can't do it. I need to move quickly, but again, it is the gospel that is the best antidote for an answer to racism. And our world is never going to eliminate racial tension and the problem of injustice because our world will never understand being in Christ. And if you struggle with relating to other people outside of your own ethnicity, beloved, then perhaps you haven't come to grips with who you and who they are in Christ as well. 
Perhaps you have traded the gospel's perspective of Christian and you replaced it with a cheap cultural imitation that allows for ethnic isolation and, and peaceful distance from other people. Racism is based on an unbiblical view of what a Christian is, and so it's sin. So let me ask you, do you guys ever dream about what Grace Church of the Valley is going to be in five years or ten years? And do you ever daydream about that? I hope that's not just a pastoral pastime. I hope it's not just us. But I, I sit around and I dream about what it might be like in five or ten years. We don't know what the Lord will do. But what do you dream about? When you think about Grace Church, what comes to your mind in five years or in ten years? After you get past that initial dream of maybe a place or, or a building, and you actually start thinking about the church, as in the people, right? who do you see when you see the people of Grace Church? In your mind's eye, do you just see people who look exactly like you? They're all identical to you. Or, or do you actually have a hope and a heart, just like it's God's heart, for the church as the gathering of the chosen people of our valley, completely irrespective of their ethnicity or their culture or their background? Do you long to gather with Hispanic believers, the ethnicity that floods our valley, but for the most part is entirely absent from our church? Does it ever bother you to think of the impact other ethnicities might have on our style of music or our dress or all, how we look or the food that we eat at fellowship gatherings? Uh, would you hesitate to see any particular ethnicity on the pastoral team? Would, would that make you resent them or hesitate to trust them and listen to them? In short, what, what I'm wondering is, are our lives so consumed with being in Christ that the gospel completely reverses the normal, earthly way of ranking and categorizing people, including the people of our valley? We need to look at one more gospel prescription this morning before we go. Right? The gospel has already said, you need to look at man the right way. Man is in God's image. Man comes from Adam. And on top of that unity, everyone who is in Christ shares a unity. There is a commonality. But the good news of Jesus Christ also demands a future perspective. So we need to have a biblical view of eternity. So let's flip over to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at a few more passages this morning, but we need to see this from Revelation chapter number 5. We need to see what God's plan is for the gospel. We need, we need to see what God's intention is for eternity. All right? We need to have a biblical grasp of what eternity is, not the one we make up. All right? So if we think about eternity... And, and there are a bunch of, I don't know, whatever you happen to be, thick Swedish, because I don't, I'm not actually sure there are any Swedish people in Kingsburg. Really? I mean, uh, but I will say Swedish or German. I mean, is that all that you see in heaven? Or just, there are just a bunch of people just like you? Same ethnicity, same background. Well, we need to have a, a biblical perspective of what that's going to be like. Let's look at Revelation 5, and we read these amazing verses. We see in the beginning of chapter 5, John standing there, um, there's this scroll, and it's sealed, and nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And so John is weeping. See in verse number four, he's weeping loudly because no one's found who is worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And in verse number five, one of the elders says this to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And this lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bulls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. All right, you guys ready for the new song of eternity? Here it is. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Jesus Christ is worthy to open this scroll. Why is he worthy? Well, this verse is going to tell us, and it's directly connected to ethnicity. For you were slain. That's why he's worthy. He was slain. And by his blood, you ransomed people for God. And where did he do that? He ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I mean, the worthiness of Christ is connected to his redemption of all people from all tongues and all nations. If, if you deny the worth of people from other nations and of all peoples, if we somehow wanted to hold the gospel back for them, we would be denying the worth of Jesus Christ. This is what eternity is like. Eternity is a great throng of people from every ethnicity saying, Jesus Christ is worthy. Eternity is about him and not about us. God's intention is that his people be multi-ethnic, multicultural, and yet united in their fellowship and worship of him. Look down on any certain ethnicity and you look down on those who exalt the worthiness of our Christ, who in heaven are going to show you how worthy Christ is. Let me show you quickly how the gospel fits today into God's plan for eternity tomorrow. Think about Acts 1, 6 to 8. The book of Acts begins. They all come together, and again, these very um, ethnically focused disciples say, Lord, we at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Right? We're all about ethnic Israel. And what does Christ say to them? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I mean, Jesus' gospel plan has always included peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That's the gospel plan. It's for all peoples. We're going to consider one last passage, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. I think you know this passage, even if it doesn't come to your mind right now. You know what is in Matthew 28, 18 to 20? It's the Great Commission. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I mean, the gospel call is connected to going to people of all nations, of all ethnicities. The gospel shapes how we look at all people. And it says this is what is most important. It's making disciples of Jesus Christ from all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus is going to have a crowd of worshipers from every tribe and nation and people. He's going to have it. Now, how could we be racist in action or attitude and fulfill the Great Commission? Is that possible? No, it's not. You can't fulfill the Great Commission if you believe in ethnic superiority. I think the American church as a whole has done an ironic job of sending missionaries over there and ignoring the ethnicities that are right here on our own doorstep. And that can't be an option for us as Grace of the Valley. We don't have the prerogative to determine what ethnicities receive our attention and which don't. We're to be making disciples of all peoples. We don't have to pursue diversity for diversity's sake. We don't have to sit around and fret because we don't have every people group in our attendance or in our leadership. But our church ought to be an accurate reflection of the ethnicities of our community. It ought to be. We cannot love the church of Jesus Christ, beloved. We cannot love the church of Jesus Christ if we do not love people of all ethnicities. We cannot love God's plan for the gospel if we do not long for the salvation of people from every nation including the nations that gather in our valley. 
Because racism is based on an unbiblical view of eternity, racism is sin. And the best antidote for it is the gospel perspective. Perhaps you've been sitting here this whole message, and you've been thinking, I don't have this problem. In fact, it's a good thing I'm not a racist. Uh, Racism is for skinheads, it's for the KKK, and it's for people like Louis Farrakhan, but it's not me. Can you let me, as we conclude, can you let me challenge that thought just a bit if, if I haven't already challenged that idea? When you park your car at the grocery store, and you're the kind of person that doesn't normally lock your car, have you ever come back to lock your car because a certain ethnicity parked their car besides yours? Because your brain said, Oh, people of that ethnicity, they're thieves. So if I want my stereo to be there, I'd better go lock it. Have you ever watched another moving truck pull into your neighborhood, watched who got out and groaned and said to yourself, well, there goes the neighborhood? Do you inwardly resent seeing billboards or instructions for putting your child's bike together or instructions from the DMV? Do you resent seeing those things in Spanish? Does that bother you? Does it get under your skin? Are you quick to put a label on an individual that you don't even know? Maybe you call them lazy or criminal or riffraff or dirty merely because of their ethnicity. If I asked your kids in Seeds next week what you thought about people of a different ethnicity, or if I asked them what they thought about people of different ethnicities, what would they tell me? Uh, Parents, are you actively shepherding your kids' hearts away from their natural sinful bent towards racism? Are are those things a reality? Because racism is not just about burning crosses in people's yards, all right? Racism is about us saying, we love our way, we love our culture, we love our ethnicity, and the rest of you, bless your hearts, can get missionaries or something else, but we want our church to look very white, or we we want it to look whatever other color you want to say. We want to do things our way. We don't want to have to think about how we wrestle through ethnic issues. Let's just be ourselves. Let's put up the wall. And that, at its heart, is ungospel. It's ungospel. The gospel demands so much more from us than avoiding flagrant racism. It demands a whole new perspective on ethnicity and earthly life. Maybe you've sat here today and you've heard this message and you've resisted it somehow in your heart. One reason might be because you resist the gospel itself and and you don't like the thought of it putting demands on how you think and how you act. Maybe you've never even considered that you need to bow your knee to the gospel and believe it. Today could be your day to become in Christ, to join the throngs of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who say, Jesus Christ is worthy. Christians, I, I pray that you have not resisted what you've heard today. This has not been anything new or shocking to you. I hope that your heart has said, this is true. And I long for this to be true in my life, that the gospel sets my priorities for how I look at all people. That, that the gospel searches our hearts and sees if there's any wicked way in us. Let's, let's allow the gospel to demand what it will in our lives. Let's let the gospel demand what it will in our church life in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years. Let's let the gospel shape our views of ethnicity and a world that will never give us the right answers about ethnicity and that will never solve racial injustice and disharmony. Let's show the glory of God now, not just in eternity. Let's show the glory of God now with a little taste of heaven with our body 
Let us, let us show his glory by gathering together in our valley people from every tribe and tongue and nation and every ethnicity who gather together, who are in God's image and who come from Adam and who are one in Christ and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and praise both now and forever from all 